So way back in the purple days of Lent, I was trying to think of topics to include in this podcast and interesting folks to have those conversations with. I knew that once we were in the Easter season, I wanted to do something with the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, but I just couldn't really figure out a hook or a question to focus on. I then went to a talk by Dr. Lauren Winner, and as part of that talk, she mentioned an observation that all the Gospels agree that when the women or the disciples show up at the tomb, they find it empty, that Jesus has already left the tomb, he's moved on, and that the message is somehow, meet me here or come find me here. And in that conversation, she formulated this question, which is, where is the resurrected Jesus now? Where should we be looking for him? So borrowing from that question, I issued a call to folks to pick a post-resurrection appearance and reflect on the passage with this question in mind. What follows is the first one of those conversations. On April 16th, with the help of Google Chat, I was able to have a conversation with Lindsay Mullen, who is finishing up her last few weeks in Divinity School. The passage she chose was John 21, verses 15 through 19. And here's what she had to say. Tell us a little bit about who you are. All right. So I'm Lindsay Mullen, um, and I am currently in my final weeks of my uh, Master of Divinity degree at Wake Forest uh, School of Divinity, which is um, a school with a Baptist history, but is not currently affiliated with any denomination. Um, I... Grew up uh, with kind of one foot in the Catholic Church and one foot in the Episcopal Church, and now I work at a Baptist Alliance Church, um, and I live with my partner Erica and our two dogs and our cat Jezebel, who might make an appearance in this video. If we're lucky. I kind of sent out this this challenge of getting folks to pick a post-resurrection appearance story, which you did, um, and to kind of talk about what that what that tells us about Jesus then and Jesus now. And so um, I kind of start off by letting you say which passage you selected and kind of setting the the scene and the the context for that. All right. So I selected a passage from John 21, um, and it's the story about, uh, it's Jesus meeting his friends on the beach for this fish fry, a resurrected Jesus. Um, partially I picked this story because I think all the Mary Magdalene stories had been claimed. And, uh, so I was like, well, great. You know, lots of feminists to do, but it's good because I also really love this story. Um, and so this is the story. The, the part I focus in on is the part where Jesus asked Peter three times, um, Peter, do you love me? So when I read this story, um, I really situate it in the context of Peter, the relationship between Jesus and Peter. Um, and two previous stories come to mind when I think about this. And the first one um, is what's recently happened before the resurrection, uh, the crucifixion, that Peter has denied Jesus three times, which of course Jesus told him he would do. Um, so I have my imagination for this story says that uh, 
when Jesus is resurrected, that Peter maybe has some mixed feelings where, of course, he's very happy and excited that um, and just all the things that you feel at resurrection. Um, but that maybe also there's some like, oh, shit, like the last exchange I had, Peter's thinking the last exchange I had with Jesus was him saying, one of the last, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's saying no. And then he goes on to do it. So right when he's like having this first cry, I imagine this turmoil on Peter that's kind of like, does he know? Are we going to talk about it? Like, we're just, are we just going to be happy? We're just going to pretend like I didn't deny um, Jesus or like, is he going to bring this up? And like that maybe he's just feeling kind of awful about it because he's been kind of found out. Um, You know, he, got scared and abandoned the person that he really loved in their hardest moment. He denied him. He denied Christ. Um, So I feel like in this exchange, um, when the first time uh, Jesus says, you know, Peter, do you love me? Um, Maybe he doesn't realize what this is about to be. And Peter's just like, yes, you know, you know, you know that I love you. Um, and, and then when Jesus asked him a second time, I feel like maybe Peter's getting, getting a hint here that um, this is maybe about what happened before. You know, do you love me? And, and Peter says, you know that I love you. Um, and then when he, when he asked him the third time, the text says that Peter was hurt. And I imagine that this is when Peter knows that Jesus asked me this question three times and before I was asked this question three times, do you know Jesus? And now he's asking me, do you love me? This is um, an exchange between friends where they sort of know that we're talking about something that we're not talking about, which is that Peter denied three times. Um, Which brings me to the second story that I think really uh, shapes this for me, which is told in the Gospel of Matthew, where Peter is the one who asked Jesus about forgiveness. You know, how many times? do you forgive someone seven times? And, you know, Jesus says not seven, but more and more. And um, so there, I think it's just this really sweet story about reconciliation, really, of um, Peter having denied Jesus three times, now getting the chance to affirm um, his love for Jesus and to be reconciled in that, to not have to live in that place of feeling like, he has still, he lived in denial of Christ, even though he did, you know, he lived that. Um, but now he's brought back in, um, in this place of love. And what Jesus tells him after he says, do you love me? Um, and Peter says, yes, you know, Jesus has these replies, um, feed my sheep. Um, which is that invitation, I think, too, to say that even though we all have these times where we've fallen short and we've really done things that are disappointing to ourselves and disappointing to the people we love, that we're still invited to do the work of of the kingdom. We're still invited to attend to the things that Jesus loved, and we're still invited to love Jesus. We're still in um, as many times as we fall short, that many times we're also invited back in. So you wanted the Mary Magdalene stories, and all the guys took it, actually. Well, a female priest claimed it once, uh, but then I think she ceded it to a guy, though I think she might do it again. Um, and I bring this up um, 
right? We can go a little academic since you're in divinity school, right? So this part of John is thought to be an add-on potentially to the gospel. Um, and one reason why they say is it's too much about church that it doesn't really like chapter 20 seems to close out the gospel. And then we get 21. That's a lot about church. And, you know, in some ways this gospel can be, I'm about to throw a feminist bone here. Right. So this is like setting up. We already have Peter as the rock from some other stories. And this is kind of setting up the primacy of Peter as the head of the church and the person that gets to, to feed the lambs and tend the, the, the flock and all of that. So how do we, you know, John, other than Mary Magdalene, and of course, in most of the Gospels, we don't see the women that we know are clearly around. So what is, what is a 21st century feminist uh, divinity school student to do with this very kind of male patriarchal scene that we have that, while it is sweet and touching about reconciliation, is talking about and would have effect on how the church goes forward and gets created? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, one, there's definitely that branch of feminist and even other um, kind of liberation theologies that that will kind of uh, adjust the text and want to have the canon within the canon or call out certain parts for being add-on. My approach is to say that, you know, the text we have is the text we have. And while academics, we can, as academics, we can parse out, you know, what is added and what's good. Like, that doesn't... that doesn't matter to most people's grandmothers or, you know, whoever that is. So it's the text we have. Um, So I think, one, I think that a lot of the stuff that's read about the primacy of Peter in this story and in other stuff is very much read into the text. It's really an eisegetical approach because church is not mentioned in this passage. Um, And so trying to sort of... um, read the text with new eyes that that don't assume that that's going to fall out of it, I think is one approach. And then really, I think there's some queering of the text. I think whenever you're trying to read with fresh eyes, there's a potential to queer something and, and make it strange. Um, and what when I use the word queer um, in this context and others, I mean things that um, make strange or reveal to us the strange ways that we interpret relationships, particularly around how we assign gender to people. And so an example would be we have Jesus and Peter who can often be portrayed or read as really masculine superhero type macho figures. You know, Jesus ripped Jesus on the cross, conquering even death. He's like a, he's like a action figure. Right. And Peter first Pope in theory, right. Keys to the kingdom binding and loosing. He's this macho guy, but we have this story here. And I think others that show these as really vulnerable and loving people, um, who, aren't so macho and don't necessarily always know what they're doing and live in a space of actual intimacy. Um, And that when we see that intimacy, there's something to learn there um, about actually transformation and and transformation for all of us, but especially those of us who are constrained by uh, gender norms, which tell us that we can't be intimate with other people of the same gender. Or, or with anybody, which I think that 
uh, the way our culture defines masculinity is actually really limiting for men um, too. So does that, does that answer the question? That does answer the question. And that kind of, you know, moves towards a little bit past the, do you love me passage to, you know, where Jesus, I, I think kind of captured a little bit of that intimacy where he's talking about, you know, when you were younger, you used to be able to tie your own belt and go wherever you wanted. But when you're older, somebody's going to have to take care of you. Um, and, um, and then goes on to, to kind of talk about how Peter would die. But mm -hmm. the, I think it definitely creates not just a notion of Peter taking care of sheep and lambs, but that somebody's going to have to take care of Peter too. Um, you know, and yeah. so it is an intimate story. And that, um, that um, which even that see that little addition from the gospel writer, that's kind of parenthetical that says it's about the death. I think even if it's not about the death, it, it is saying to Peter, like you're vulnerable here too. You're not this, um, infallible, impenetrable fortress, right? You're, you're a person. You're my friend. You're a person I love. Um, it is a very, very sweet story. Um, how, you know, in the church, we, the folks that, you know, either teach or preach or just take different roles in the church or are kind of constantly tasked with how do we take these stories written 2000 years ago and make them um, have weight and have relevance today. And so, you know, this intimate scene on a beach um, with grilled fish uh, and talking about sheep. Nobody knows what, you know, nobody knows about stinky, smelly sheep and how you take care of sheep anymore. These kind of what does this story bring forward to us in the 21st century for, for the, the folks tasked with telling the story today? What does it bring to us? I think that one thing that could come from this story is the sense is um, a reaction against the sense that people who are ministers need to always be um, certain um, and can't ever go through times of denial, um, and that the the remedy to that isn't um, isn't about being sure and never denying, but the remedy to that is both about love, about loving, and about attending to the things that we know that Jesus loved. Um, so a minister, any kind of minister, whether it's lay or ordained or anything like that, um, has, I think, an invitation here to I think to answer the answer both the question of do you know this man and do you love me, um, in in a place from a place of of friendship and and again intimacy, um, and that that's a that's a challenge I think for a lot of people. Um, I think it's much safer to be that fortress um, when you're doing good work. Like I'm the one who I'm the one who does it has, like has my shit together and I know about my faith and I'm ministering to other people. And, but it's, 
I think, more powerful and more in line with the call of Jesus to be doing ministry from a place of um, not necessarily always surety, a, a place where, where you are constantly aware and open about your um, need for grace and your um, the, and the vulnerability that comes with loving something. So loving Jesus, or that love also opens you up. It's, it's emotional. It's not like this rational thing that's really safe to do and really um, makes a lot of sense or that really is that culturally acceptable um, in its raw form. You know, it's a lot, it's countercultural. It should be. So um, especially when that, that, it takes you to places of like mystery sometimes where you have to have those open eyes where you're like, well, what does it mean to feed Jesus's stupid smelly sheep? Um, exactly. I don't know. I'm trying to do it. And I don't even know what I'm doing because I am in love with this person, Jesus, who tends to speak in sort of mysterious ways that I don't always understand. <laughs> um, yeah. And sometimes we end up kind of being making fools of ourselves and that's, that's okay. Um, yeah, and I, I do think there's something in here, too, about being open to queerness in relationships in general and being trying not to see things the way that um, we've always been taught they should be seen, especially when it comes to um, our scripture. So maybe I should explain the terms of being being exegetical versus eisegetical. When we read exegetically, we read out of the text. And when we read eisegetically, we read into the text. And eisegesis can be okay. There's a lot of text you can read allegorically and that kind of thing. But if we're always doing that, then we're reading something into it that's not there. We're not letting the Bible still speak to us today. Um, you know, this is a text. So, of course, the Catholic Church is really important. It's the primacy of St. Peter, right? It's the, it sets up the whole thing. Like, I don't give a shit about that. Why should I in some ways? Like... In a vacuum, as if some kind of vacuum exists, but if I didn't have that background, I would never read this story and think, obviously, this is about the church and this is about Peter being the head and we should follow Rome because that's where Peter was. Like, no, I, no one would ever get that if you didn't have, you know, 1600 years of people telling you that that's what this meant. But, so there's maybe an invitation here to just read the text with open open eyes traditionally this little pericope ends with verse 19 which the first part is a the parenthetical about the kind of death but the last part of verse 19 is an after he um he being jesus said to him and him being peter so afterwards jesus says to peter follow me mm-hmm I think this is the Episcopal Church, and certainly a lot of churches currently are trying to figure out where the heck is Jesus so we can follow him. So effective in divinity school, where is Jesus and what, what is your dream for the church in trying to follow him? <laughs> Big question. I didn't warn uh, you about that question. I just thought I know, of it. That's coming. Well, I mean, one thing I think in this story, if we took away the the, the verse 
the, if we stop versing it out, it's sort of a literal, I think Jesus is saying like, come on, let's go. So there's this sort of literal thing of where is Jesus going in the next few verses. Um, but to the bigger question, I mean, I'm a big believer in the, the strain of theology that says that Jesus is with the oppressed and with the marginalized. Um, and is on the side of the oppressed. And I know there are people who don't like that. I think Episcopalians especially have a hard time about that because we want a, a mediator Jesus who stands in the middle of things and is more uh, interested in making sure that everybody is at the table than um, he's interested in being picking sides. But while I see the value in that, I don't buy it. I don't, not this Jesus to me, not this Jesus that I'm pointing at the Bible here. This Jesus is, is with the, the oppressed and is constantly inviting those with power to also to divest of that power and come and follow, um, to live this different kind of life where you uh, let go of the things of the world. Um and by the things of the world, I do mean that that power, that privilege that comes with the, the structures our society is built. So I think that if you're looking for Jesus, it is good to look for the people who are being written out, um, who are going without, who are being told that they're not enough, um, who are being just generally made invisible by the broader systems. Um, so, I mean, at this point in history, I think that Jesus would have quite a lot of attention to um, people of color who are constantly marginalized by the white supremacist system that's in place in this country. I think that Jesus would be especially attentive to um queer people, and by that I mean lesbian, gay, bisexual, and especially transgendered people um, who are also constantly being written out uh, to women who, again, don't hold power in these same kinds of ways to poor people, to disabled people, um, to all of us in the ways that we are marginalized, in the ways that we're made to feel that we're not enough. Um, that's, where, that's where Jesus lives in those places. Well, I think that is um, an excellent answer and probably a great way to kind of to, to wrap things up. Um, I like that Jezebel made an appearance there at the end yeah, yeah. over your shoulder. Um, I think she's giving her opinion on privilege by turning her backside to the cat. Right. <laughs> um, she's a white cat. You know, she has to, she, she might need to check her own white cat privilege. Um, but, and she's very well balanced. She is. So she practices. <laughs> she does that very, very well. So, um, well, I think that is a, a, an excellent way to kind of bring it to a conclusion. Um, I thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your morning to talk to us about that and, um, and sharing your thoughts with us on this passage from the Gospel of John. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for doing this whole podcast. I'm excited to listen to all of them.